passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. When Crystal and I lived in Chicago uh, years ago, we had about a 40-minute commute from where we lived to, to where we uh, worked each day. And over the course of our time there, uh, would rotate through different things that I would do to pass the time in the car. Sometimes I'd listen to audiobooks, uh, but then I'd get burned out on that. And so I'd, I'd switch to listen to music, and then sometimes nothing at all. But, um, uh, but one of my favorite pastimes uh, was every single Monday in the fall, uh, there would be this call-in show, multiple call-in shows uh, on the sports talk radio channel in Chicago. I'm not a Bears fan. I'm not a Chicago Bears fan. I, I don't have anything against them. I uh, don't really uh, like them either, but, but one of the most entertaining things about my experience in Chicago was tuning into that every single Monday after a Bears loss on Sunday and hearing people talk about how the world was ending, how the world was going to end because the bears were historically bad on Sunday and the world was essentially over. Everyone in Chicago, not whether it doesn't matter if they were associated with the bears organization or not, needed to lose their job in order for the bears to become good again. And as I, was tu as I was tuning into this over and over, I'd hear caller after caller talk about this. And over the course of the years, I also became relatively familiar with the hosts of that call-in radio show as well. And I'd, I didn't realize this until later, but I began to unconsciously create an image of these men that I heard every single week I began to think of them looking a, a certain way. I began to fill in the gaps. I associated their voice with what I assumed that they would look like. And one day, after an especially long commute, I had to go to Indianapolis. And so I was on my way back from Indianapolis. I listened to them for a couple hours. And I remember I was in the south suburbs of Chicago. And I said, when I get home, I'm finally going to Google what these people look like. And so I got home, and I looked up each of their names on the internet, and I was shocked that the person that I thought was thin and short was actually built and extremely tall. The person that I thought looked like me was actually a professional football player in his past, so uh, maybe that tells you what I think of myself. Uh, the one that I thought had a full head of hair was actually bald, and on and on and on. And maybe you've experienced something similar. Maybe before you meet someone for the first time that you've heard a whole lot about, them, you have this mental picture of what they look like or what they're like in your mind, and then you meet them, and then you realize that they are completely different, that they are a far cry from what you actually thought that they were like. The imagination that God has given you began to fill in the gaps of your knowledge where you didn't understand or you didn't know what they were like or what they looked like, and you created an image, you created a picture of what they were like. 
Now, imagination is a good thing. It's one of the ways that we reflect God. We are created in God's image, and and imagination, creativity is one of the things that that God has given to humanity. It's led to countless works of fiction. It's led to beautiful technological advancements that save numerous lives. It's led to a number of different things. And while imagination can be a good thing, it can also be a dangerous thing when it comes to our relationships. And there's no area of our lives where the imagination, imagining what someone is like, is more dangerous than it is with our relationship with God. This morning, we're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments. If you're a guest with us, we're only on Commandment 2, so you haven't missed out a lot. We have, over the course of the last few weeks, we, we've actually talked about the context or, or really set the groundwork for the Ten Commandments and said, this is the context in which God gives all of these demands, all of these commands to humanity. He, he says that this is not a way for us to live in order to earn God's favor, This is not a way for us to live in order to earn salvation from God. They're not about being good enough at all, but instead, the commands that we are given are a way for us to live in response to the salvation that God has already given us. Israel was reminded of this at the beginning of God's words in Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are found. He says this at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is reminding his people right at the very beginning, he's telling them what he has already done for them before he tells them how they are to live as his rescued, reconciled, redeemed people. And last week, we looked at the first commandment, the first demand that God places on our lives, and that command is for us to worship God alone. While none of us today may, not, may bow down to literal statues of stone or metal of wood, each and every one of us has a tendency to create things that are not God into God's and worship them. God has created us as worshipers. Every single person worships, and we will worship something, whether that is God or something that we put in the place of God, whether that is our family, our self-image, our money, our work, or on and on and on. And this command to worship God alone is the first step in our calling to faithfully follow God. That's what Jesus says when he sums up the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. During his earthly ministry, he was asked, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second greatest commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus, when he says this, is really summing up the two halves of the Ten Commandments that govern the lives of God's people. First, he talks about our relationship with God. In the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are all about a vertical relationship between us and God. And then the last six are all about our relationship with others. Commandments 5 through 10, all about how you are supposed to interact with others as God's saved people. So if we ask ourselves how we are to love God, then last week we saw the beginning of how we are to love God. The way we love God is we worship and serve 
him alone. And this week, we see another way that we are called to love God or how we love God, and that is that we worship him the right way. So the first command is all about worshiping the right God. This morning is all about making sure that we worship the right God the right way. That's the, that's the focus of the second commandment, and we could sum it up by just saying this. Last week it was your deliverance demands undivided devotion. This morning it is your deliverance demands acceptable worship. It is not enough for us to just worship the right God, but because God is the creator, God is the king of the entire universe, he has the right to decide and say how he wants to be worshiped. And so if we're going to love God supremely, which is what Jesus tells us to do in the Gospels, then we must learn how to worship in an acceptable way to God. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at the second commandment today. It starts in verse 4. It's verses 4 through 6. It's actually one of the longer of the Ten Commandments. Normally, I preach through the uh, English Standard Version here at Crosswinds, the ESV. Uh, this morning, I'm going, to t- I'm going to preach from the 2011 version of the NIV. And the reason why will probably become clear when we get to verse 6. There's a, there's a translation difference that uh, I, I prefer the way the NIV translates it because I think it, it makes more sense. Um, But hear these words from Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This command found in those three verses tells us uh, in very clear fashion how we are to worship God. First, it can really be split into four parts. There's a demand that's placed on our life. There is a, a reason for that demand being placed on our lives. Then there's a warning and then finally, a blessing if we keep this command. So let's consider each of these pieces individually. First, let's look at the demand. The demand is found in verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. It says this, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, if you were here with us last week, you may think that this sounds an awful lot like what we looked at last week in verse 3. Verse 3 tells us that we are to have no other gods besides the God of Israel, or Yahweh, his covenantal name. Then verses 4 and 5, after saying, don't have any other gods, it's almost like God repeats himself and says, this is really important. I want you to make sure that you don't have any sort of idols, that you don't make any images, graven images of me. And we may begin to think, well, these are just the same commandment, right? But there's a crucial distinction here. Verse verse, um, 3, the first commandment, has in view the worship of other gods. Gods like today, money, pleasure, relationships, our status, etc., etc., etc. The second commandment, which we're looking at today, is concerned with what I already said. We're making sure that we are worshiping the right God, the right way. I think an illustration from Israel's 
history is, is helpful to understand this distinction. The worst thing that happened to Israel was this man named Ahab. Ahab was a king of the Israelites who came to power uh, a couple generations after the, the kingdom split in two. And his wife was named Jezebel, and the two of them introduced the worship of a false god named Baal into the nation of Israel. Baal worship uh, was the worship of a different god. It was a clear violation of the first commandment, this commandment to have no other gods besides the Lord your God. It's actually one of the reasons why God sent the Israelites into exile. 2 Kings chapter 9 tells us the end of Ahab's reign. It tells us the aftermath of what takes place next. And it tells us about this military commander named Jehu. Jehu was commissioned by God to actually cleanse the nation of Israel from, uh, of all of this Baal worship. He was going to ascend to the throne after overthrowing Ahab and his line and making sure that Israel worshiped the Lord, their God, alone. And so 2 Kings chapter 9, 2 Kings 10, tell us about Jehu uh, really doing what God had called him to do, except he does it through brutality, he does it through deceit and through lying. He slaughters the entire line of Ahab, and then he tricks all of the Baal worshipers, all of these people who are breaking the first commandment, he tricks them all to gather together, and he kills each and every one of them. 2 Kings chapter 10, starting in verse 25, describes what took place. It says this, and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Then Jehu wiped out Baal, or thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Sounds good, right? He's doing what God told him. He's getting rid of the, the worship of this false God. It's gone from Israel. But notice verse 29, the exact, the following verse. It says this, but... Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Who's that? We'll, we'll get to that here in a second. Which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So you might be saying, well, what's going on here? Why is Jehu willing to kill everyone who is worshiping this false god, Why, Baal? Why is he willing to get rid of Baal worship, but he's not willing to get rid of this worship of this, these golden calves? And the answer reveals to us the distinction between the first commandment and the second commandment. Baal worship is very clearly the worship of a false god. But these golden calves were actually a violation of the second commandment. The golden calves throughout Israel's history were used as a way of symbolizing God himself. So when Jeroboam became the king of the northern kingdom in Israel. He decided that he didn't want people going back to Jerusalem to worship the true God. And so he said, you know what? We still want to follow God. We still want to follow the Lord. But what we're going to do is we're going to create these images. We're going to create these statues that represent God to the people. And so he creates a golden calf and he puts it at the very far northernmost part of his kingdom, and then he puts one at the very southernmost part of his kingdom. These were images that symbolized Yahweh. They symbolized the God of Israel. They weren't false gods of pagan nations, but they were instead an attempt by Israel to create a picture of God. This is the exact same thing that takes place in Exodus chapter 32. 
Many of us are familiar with the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. Aaron, Moses goes up on a mountain, and then when he comes back down, the people are worshiping this golden calf. Now, what Aaron did not do is decide to lead a revolt against the God who led them out of Egypt, against Yahweh himself. He instead uses a pagan form of worship, using a statue as a way to offer worship to God. He says that this statue is a representation of the God who delivered you from Egypt. You see, in the ancient world, images were a very common way for people to worship their gods. They were used, statues of metal, of stone, of wood, were used to worship the gods in Egypt. They were used to worship the gods of Mesopotamia, of the Mediterranean, of the, Can- uh, of the Canaan area. Everywhere you looked, statues were used to represent the god that people worshipped. Egyptians in particular were known for this. So God's command here in the second commandment, the demand he places on the lives of his people is that the people of Israel are not supposed to worship him the way the nations worship their gods. You're not supposed to worship me the way that you worship other people worship their gods. That's what God is saying to Israel. We're going to look at the reason why here in a few moments, but just consider this. The reason why God says this, or one of the reasons why, is that images inadequately communicate God's character. They inadequately communicate God's character. Any sort of image that you can create will never fully convey who God is. And by that extension, you will begin to worship a God who is not God. You will eventually, if you break the second commandment, you will eventually begin to break the first commandment. You will begin to worship a God who is not. So use the example of the golden calves from Israel's history. Why was the metal image of a golden calf so inadequate? Why was it such an abomination to God? Well, such an image may have communicated God's power may have communicated his majesty, but what, what of his love? What does a golden calf communicate about God's mercy, about God's grace, about his omnipresence, the fact that God is present everywhere, not just where a statue is, or the fact that God is imminent, that he intimately cares for each and every piece of his creation, especially those who are his children image creates this inadequate view of God, which eventually leads to the worship of a false God. You see, the second commandment forbids us from worshiping God the way pagans worshiped their gods because it's wholly inadequate. It's completely inadequate for worshiping who God actually is, communicating who God actually is. It's only a matter of time that that inadequate worship of God, the the breaking of the second commandment, will lead to worshiping the wrong God, breaking of the first commandment. So the demand here for the Israelites is very clear. clear. Worship the right God the right way. And you may be wondering, well, how on earth does that apply to us today? Consider, I think there are two ways that this commandment still applies to us today. Let's look at both of them. First, this demand applies specifically to worship. 
When we worship God, we better make sure that we are doing it the right way. We better make sure that our worship is done the right way. This morning is not the time, it's not the place to lay out a proper theology of worship, but consider Jesus' words in the book of John considering worship. He says this, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What can we learn from this passage about what kind of worship is acceptable to God? Well, first, true worship is directed to the Father. Worship is not a form of entertainment. It is not primarily concerned with meeting our needs, but it is a time for us to, res- to uh, express our adoration to God the Father. Second, worship has salvation as its content. It tells us in this passage that we just looked at from John 4, this salvation comes from the Jews. By extension, it's focusing on the work of Christ, the salvation of humanity that is found in Christ. True worship, worship that is acceptable to God, pleasing to God, focuses on what Christ has done for you. And it's an expression of wonder. It's an expression of gratitude, of marvel at the work of Christ and bringing you salvation. Third, true worship, acceptable worship is, found, is done through the Spirit, through the Spirit. It is the Spirit that enables us to worship rightly. It is the Spirit that enables us to worship God truly. When we worship the Spirit, or when we worship in the Spirit, our words and our actions on a Sunday morning line up with the worship of our lives on Monday through Friday, uh, through Saturday. And then finally, worship must be done in truth. Worship that is acceptable to God has the truth of who God is and, who, and what God has actually done at the center of it. And we may begin to, to wonder, where is this truth found? How can we actually worship God in truth? Well, it's found in what God has communicated through his word. When we talk about acceptable worship to God, it's less concerned with method, although I do think that there are types of worship practices here in the church today that are not at all honoring to God. This is primarily focused and concerned with your heart and with your content of your worship. Is your worship a form of dead ritual? Is your worship only focused on making yourself feel good about yourself? Is it a form of entertainment and nothing more? Does it rarely mention the majesty of God because it's so focused on humanity? The second commandment demands that we worship the right God the right way. There's another way that the second commandment applies to each of us today. While there are some traditions out there uh, today that commonly use images in worship like Eastern Orthodoxy, most of us likely do not use images, physical images of God when we worship. But 
we can all be guilty of creating mental images of God that we end up worshiping. There's an old adage, I don't know who originally said it, there's an old adage that says, God created man in his image, and since then, humanity has been returning the favor. All of us, as we talked about last week, all of us, are our hearts are idol factories. We continually, constantly create idols. We constantly have a tendency to remake God in a way that is more like us, something that is more palpable to us, something that is more okay with our weaknesses. For, us to, for me to put it another way, uh, we do the exact same thing that I did with those radio announcers in Chicago all those years ago. We fill in the gaps of our knowledge about God by creating a picture of God that may be a far cry from who he actually is today. And remember why this is so dangerous. An image provides us with an incomplete picture of what God is actually like, and that is detestable to God. There's a phrase that that is so often used in today's culture. You most likely have heard it before. It it sums up perfectly this dangerous violation of the second commandment, uh, creating images of God, not not physical images of God, but images of God in our mind. Whenever you hear someone say, uh, referring to a, a specific position or belief, and they say, that's the God I know, or that's the God I follow, or the God I believe in would never, and then they fill it in. Similar statements like that. On their own, there's nothing inherently wrong with those statements. After all, someone could say in response to the picture of God revealed in Scripture and say, that's the God I know. And you could say, absolutely right. But most often, most of the time, when people say things like this, those statements are tied to some sort of controversial statement denying a historical or orthodox doctrine of the Christian faith. So people will say, the God I know would never send good people to hell. Or the God I follow doesn't hold to outdated beliefs on sexual orientation. Or the God I believe in doesn't care what religion you follow since they're all basically the same thing. Each of these statements emphasizes one attribute of God, primarily God's love at the expense of others. And when we do that, when we emphasize an attribute of God at the expense of others, whatever those attributes are, we create a mental picture of God that is a far cry of who he actually is. And in our attempt to love God and to love others, which is what Jesus says are the greatest commandments, we actually break the second commandment and are well on our way to breaking the first commandment because we don't worship the right God the right way and soon we won't even be worshiping the right God. So how do we combat such a pitfall? It's a temptation that every single one of us is susceptible to. Our hearts are idle factories, and we can justify with the best of them whatever we want quite well. So how do we address this temptation in our lives? We'll go back to this radio illustration from earlier. What caused me to realize that my mental pictures were so inadequate, so inaccurate, was actual knowledge, actual revelation of what these people looked like. So how do we combat this downward slide in our lives to create idols, to create false images, false pictures of God in our minds? It's with actual knowledge, actual revelation of who God is. 
It is through a habitual, consistent exposure to the understanding of who God is in his word, in scripture, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that will continually address this issue. It won't, be, it won't make you invincible. Reading your Bible all the time or consistently on a consistent basis daily does not make you invincible to this danger. We all have blind spots in our lives, but it is the place where we start. We expose ourselves consistently to the whole revelation of who God is in the scriptures and our false images of God, things that we create to uh, allow us to get away with certain things, emphasizing a certain attribute, ignoring something that we don't like. All of these things are continually torn down. We are no longer listening to the radio. We have to come to grips with what God is actually like by looking at him in Scripture, or we have to ignore it. If we are truly to love God, then we have to worship him the right way. We cannot create these mental pictures of God. We have to tear down these false images of God to worship God the right way. And the way we start doing that is with a consistent exposure of our hearts to scripture. We worship the right God the right way. So that's the demand. We're gonna spend a lot less time on the rest of these four pieces. The demand of the second commandment is clear. Let's turn our attention to the reason that this text gives for the demand found in the second part of verse five. It says this, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We have seen the demand. We've seen that we worship the right God the right way. Now we see the reason. We worship the right God the right way because it's the only way. Consider how God starts this segment of the verse. He starts with a reminder of who he is. He says, I am the Lord, or not translated, I am Yahweh. I am the God of the covenant. Why is false worship so abominable, so unacceptable to God? It's because any image, whether it's a physical one or whether it's a mental one today, whatever type of image it is, it detracts from who God actually is. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, God is calling Moses to lead the people out of slavery to Egypt, and, he's, and there's this conversation that the two of them have. Consider these words from, uh, from Exodus chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Here at the very beginning of God's work to, to bring Israel out of Egypt, God reveals his name to the people of Israel. He says, I am who I am, or, or maybe a, a better way of translating that is, I am who I will be. This name means many things, but for our purposes today, it, it most certainly means that God is the one who decides what God is like. God is God, and the way we create images of him, pictures of him, is not acceptable to him. We don't get to decide what God is like. We don't get to decide who God is. He says, I am who I am. I am the Lord. He's not like the idols of the nations. He's not like the idols of our hearts that we create after our own image. God is 
God has been and God always will be God. And God is the one who gets to decide what God is like. And the only way that we are able to understand what God is like is the way God decides to reveal himself. God is the one who chooses to reveal himself in the scriptures and then later in the New Testament in Jesus. You see, when we create mental images of God, when we worship God the wrong way, then we are in intentionally or unintentionally, we are actually detracting from who God is. We are saying that what God has revealed himself to be like in the scriptures is no longer true. And God is deeply concerned with an accurate revelation of who he is because he has already revealed to us what he is like. And so the reason that we have for how, why these images are unacceptable is because the Lord says, my name is I am who I am. I am not I am who you want me to be. That's the first reason. God gives a second reason here why we are to avoid images in worship. He said, whether they're mental, whether they're real, it's because God is a jealous God. Now, when we think of jealousy, we oftentimes think of envy, uh, something that is rooted in sin. And, and as we later will see in the Ten Commandments, when we get to the last one on covetousness, it's actually a form of idolatry. So the child who is jealous of his or her sibling's new toy is in the wrong. Or when we think of jealousy, we think of the person who was passed over for a promotion that goes to their coworker, or the family who spends time on social media uh, being jealous of the extravagant loca uh, vacations that their friends are taking. But sometimes jealousy is a good thing, like the jealous love of a wife for her husband. For them, the, this idea of jealousy is not rooted in envy, it's actually rooted in love. And that's the exact same way with God's jealousy. God's jealousy is not petty envy. It's actually rooted in his love for his people. He desires his people to be faithful to him, to love him just the way that he has loved them. And so why should we be sure to worship the right God the right way? It's because when we worship him wrongly, when we create false images of God, in our minds, we make God a lot more like the gods of the nations. In fact, we make God indistinguishable from the gods of the nations, a pale shadow of who he actually is. The second commandment, this idea of wrong worship, always leads to breaking the first commandment because when we worship the right way, we are worshiping in a way that is acceptable to God. That's the reason. Let's keep looking at our text. We see a warning at the end of verse five. Punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God has given us the demand. God has given us the reason for that demand and now he gives us a warning, a warning of, of danger, the danger of unacceptable worship. He says judgment awaits those who worship the wrong way. Judgment awaits those who worship the wrong way. Those who worship God haphazardly, those who worship God selfishly, those who worship pale reflections of who God actually is will be judged for their idolatry. And when you read this verse, it can be terrifying. It can also 
come across as extremely unfair. After all, what does God mean that he's going to punish children for the sins of their parents? So maybe you were raised in a non-Christian home. Does that mean that you, because your parents were not Christians, are currently being judged, currently cursed because of the sins of your parents, living under this curse for something you had no control over? And you might be saying, well, how on earth is that fair? Let's consider what this text is trying to communicate. First, for parents, this is a very important warning for us. It's a very important warning that the way parents raise their children will shape the direction of their hearts, the love of their hearts. Based off the way you live your life, children will quickly discover what actually matters to you, what your God actually is, what actually holds the allegiance of your heart. And so if you attend church on a periodic basis, or even if you attend church faithfully on Sundays, but that attendance is quickly overruled by a love of the world the rest of the week, your children will soon realize what matters. They will create a picture of God that that says that this God is one that we only have to serve on Sundays. In fact, he's a God that we can manipulate, that if we attend on Sundays, then he's gonna bless us the rest of of our lives, the rest of the week. It's a transaction, not a form of worship. So this passage tells us that parents should really take this passage seriously. This is a warning, seriously, to find the idolatries that are in your life, the mental images of God that aren't accurate in our lives, and root them out of our lives because our children will struggle with them as well unless God intervenes. It's a very real warning here. But second, this passage is built off of a family structure from a thousand, thousands of years ago that's extremely different than our family structures today. So in ancient times, it was very common for women to get married as early teens. They would get married around 14 or 15. When those women would get married, they would actually move into their in-law's house because their, their uh, husband, their new husband, would not actually have received an inheritance yet. And so most of the time, they would actually move in with their in-laws for a period of time until their, fa- their, until their husband had, uh, had land to live on. And what's more is once they moved into this, uh, once they were married, they would actually start having children right away. In addition to that, it was common for aging parents, people who were unable to work, to live in the same household as their children. So... Imagine or consider how many generations could be living in one single household back in the time that this was written. You could have the retired parents, the first generation. You could have the in-laws, second generation. You could have the, the newlyweds, the third generation, and their children, the fourth generation. God is not referring to this form of curse that extends to your children for the next 100, 150 years or however long your generations live. God is pronouncing a curse here, but it's a curse on households. Households that reject him. Households that set up these false images of God in order to worship them. To make this even clearer, the text tells us that this curse, at the very end of it, says in verse 5, that this curse is directed to those who Hate me. God punishes those who hate him, not those who love him. So we can actually see that this is quite a reasonable curse from God. What's significant is that word hate. 
What God is describing here, when he describes this pagan worship, this, this false worship, this unacceptable worship of him, he says, it shows hatred for me. So every time that we create a mental image of God in our mind that is, con- is contradictory to what God is actually like, every single time where we sin and we justify it by saying, well, it's not really that big of a deal to God, and we show hatred and contempt for what God is actually like. Every time that we see God as someone to be manipulated into giving us a blessing, it shows disdain for God. Every time our worship is consumed with self-centeredness only about ourselves or entertainment, it reveals that we hate God who says, I am who I am. Judgment awaits those who worship the wrong way. That brings us to the blessing that's found in verse six. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This verse has to be, the previous verse has to be read in context of this verse as well. There is judgment awaiting those households that worship God the wrong way, but there is also an everlasting blessedness for those who take seriously this commandment. Notice the unbelievable contrast that is found here in verse five. This curse, uh, this curse for families that break the second commandment, households that break the second commandment, and yet those who keep the second commandment are shown love for a thousand generations. In ancient times, a generation was considered to be 40 years. So 40 times 1,000 is 40,000 years. This is illustrative language for forever. God will show love to families forever if they keep this commandment. And notice what this verse tells us of what it means for us to actually love God. It means to keep this commandment. It means to love God, to worship God the right way. And God gives us this incredible promise that the God who delivered us from the domain of darkness, the God who rescued us, the God who purchased our lives, the God who now owns us, promises us unending love if we worship him the right way. You see, your deliverance demands acceptable worship. And part of that acceptable worship means to put aside any form of worship that is unacceptable to God, that draws more attention to yourself, that is only focused on entertainment, that is only focused on your needs instead of the God who delivered you. And part of that acceptable worship means to be consistently and faithfully having your understanding of God, of the great I am, the one who says I am who I am, shaped by who he says he is revealed in scripture. And as we close, I think it's important for us to look at this just briefly from the perspective of the New Testament. In the New Testament, we are given another reason, infinitely more important for why we should have no images of what God is like. And that is because God has already given us one. Colossians chapter one. Christ is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which he has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For Christians, the ultimate reason we do not worship God, or the ultimate reason we do not worship God through false images, that we cre- don't create images of God, or physical, or these mental understandings that are messed up, the ultimate reason is because they are a far cry from the revelation of who God actually is. The revelation of God, who, of who God actually is, is found in Christ. Later in Colossians 2, for in Christ the whole, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see, when we look to Christ, we see the full revelation of what God is like And it is in worshiping this Christ that we understand what type of worship is acceptable to God. You see, your deliverance demands acceptable worship, and that means that your worship must be focused on the person and work of Jesus as revealed in the Scriptures. Your deliverance demands acceptable worship. And so as we join our voices together in here just a few seconds, let's, let's do that with that high calling in mind. And when we go from here in just a few minutes, as we go back to our daily lives, as we go back to work or spending time with our families or whatever God has called you in, let us look at our lives as a way to to join in that calling, to worship God in an acceptable way, to live every day to the glory of God as revealed in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways you reveal yourself in your word. We ask that you would be gracious to us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.